Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Talking Impact, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation Impact at the University of Northampton. My name is Richard Hazenberg, and in each podcast, I am joined by a leading person from the world of social innovation to discuss their life, work, and a current affairs issue of the day. Today's podcast is a really special one coming direct from the House of Lords, where we're joined by Lord Bird, the founder of The Big Issue, in Residence Room 2. Well, welcome to Talking Impact, Lord Bird. It's great to have you on the show. It's, I'm, I really look forward to the Talking Impact uh, podcast. We're really interested to hear about uh, the, the journey that you went through a big issue. But before we get onto that, can we just actually first talk about social innovation? What, what does social innovation and social enterprise mean to you? Well, to me, social innovation is where you start businesses or, or services or whatever, and you grow them and they're driven by a social need. So they address social needs. This is what I did with the big issue. Um, And therefore, uh, it's kind of like a business response to a social crisis. So to me, uh, social innovation is possibly the best kind of innovation because it brings social justice. It brings the opportunity of of getting people in poverty out of poverty. Um, It gets people educated. It gets them taking risks in a structural structurally supportive sort of way so that's what it means to me yeah you've built big issue up it's it's a globally recognized uh, social enterprise brand now you just talk us through um what was the journey like with, with with big issue you know coming from setting it up and growing it over the last few decades mm. well it was um i think what's so exciting for me about the big issue is how crummy it really was how poor quality it was in terms of its magazine, in terms of the skill base of the people who came in. Very, very limited. Uh, No one was really very good at what they intended to do. Mm. But uh, the beauty of developing a social enterprise is it gives you a chance to take people who are not from the top drawer and then help them gain and develop and change so in the end, they become superlative. They come, become really good at it, but they become good at it on the job. There are, and unfortunately, there are too many hurdles for people to get into business, to get into work even, where there's all sorts of expectations. And what is never taken into account, and I think social enterprises do, is take somebody and nurture them and they grow and you grow. And I think that's uh, the lesson of the big issue is you start a magazine, it, it's not much to look at, you read it, it's not much to read, and then it grows and it becomes useful, becomes useful to people because it's got bigger and stronger. And then you see the transformation of homeless people from begging or prostituting themselves, uh, stealing into becoming effective uh, merchants selling their product in the marketplace. Um, so the journey for us was first of all not set our bar too high. We really just wanted to get a magazine out. We wanted to get homeless people working with us. It was a god awful experience. It was I wouldn't want to go through it again. Um, it was tiring. It was exhausting. It was repetitive. It was insulting. It was violent, uh, and um, but we made it work, and it, and every time we did it, 
when we did it in other places in the UK or in other parts of the world, we got much better at it. So we could cut out all of the the damaging side of stuff. We we took it on the chin in the first instance, but we didn't have to do that when we started in Australia, for instance, or South Africa, or or South America, or or, or in um, um, Japan, or whatever. So. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Or... No, absolutely. I mean, what's always struck me about the big issue, I suppose, is that, and, and you talked a little bit about it there, about you know about helping people to develop. Is it's really about to me? It's really about empowering people. It seems to me that what you what you really do is you empower them, um, and, and you allow them to build the confidence and develop a skill set as merchants, as sellers, as uh, as individuals to then you know to go on to the next stage in their life and to move away from that that the sort of life of homelessness that they were previously in mm. well you see one of the big problems when we started the big issue we had 501 homeless organizations in london and most of those were totally against us because what we were doing we were giving people with complex social problems a chance of making money which they could then spend on drink and drugs mm. And when I pointed out to them that they were already taking the drink and the drugs, but they were committing crime or begging or prostituting to achieve it, then I was being counterintuitive and said, well, isn't it good to give people a chance to do something like that and the only people they harm is themselves? And you decriminalise them and then it gives you a chance of moving them on. I don't think many people have thought in that sort of way. Um, and that's... I would say the, the first thing the big issue has always remained is a crime prevention mechanism. And I'm very, very proud of that, probably more than anything that's gone around the world and stopped people getting into trouble. And then on that basis, you can then do something with them because they're doing things which are not criminal. And, uh, you know, what were the triggers for you around this? I mean, at what point did you suddenly think, you know, Homelessness is an area that I need to help in, and setting up this this sort of magazine business is the way to do it. I mean, what were the triggers for you as an individual? There, there weren't any triggers. Uh, Gordon Roddick, who with Anita Roddick started the body shop, uh, went to New York in 1990, and he was walking through town, and some big guy approaches him with a. Uh, he said he was like a wardrobe walking along the street. He said it was enormous. And he said, would you like to buy a copy of my street paper? And Gordon said, how much is it? And he says, it's a dollar. He said, how does it work? He says, I buy it for 50 cents. I sell it for a dollar. Every time I sell a paper, I make enough money to live in my rooming house. I've been in and out of the penitentiary for most of my life. I'm 54. If I go back in, they'll throw the key away. So Gordon thought, wow, this is a crime prevention program. This is a life-enhancing program. This is a chance of people making legitimate money. It's a way of raising up their ability to believe in themselves. And the guy uh, in question said, I'm doing it for my children. So it was a family thing. So Gordon came back, got the Body Shop Foundation to do a feasibility study, which proved that it couldn't be done because most of the homeless organisations were totally opposed to the idea um, because of the very reactionary nature they looked upon, that is almost 30 years ago now, 28 years ago, they looked upon homeless people as victims. They were like uh, refugees. So you just came out and give them a bit of food, give them a bit of this, 
never engage them in their own redemption uh, so and their own transformation so we came along and said we're going to involve them in their own transformation so uh, it wasn't and then he came to me because the body shop foundation couldn't do it and as be, as I'd been homeless and been a rough sleeper and had been in prison and a user and all that sort of stuff it fitted very well here was a person who had no sentimental or, or cynical attachments to people in poverty just a, I looked upon it as a very straightforward uh, situation I needed a job and they needed uh, they needed to make some legitimate money and earn their own living and I mean, the social impacts of these types of interventions are, are actually they're huge, aren't they? They're so they're so widespread. I mean, you've you've touched on it in a few of the things you've said there, around uh, reducing or preventing crime, getting people into em- employment, you know, healthcare benefits that come from not living on the streets or uh, you know not taking drugs and, and drinking too much alcohol. And these costs are huge to the state if people don't do something about it, aren't they? Well, that's the other thing. Um, if you if you look at the uh, the way the the kind of financial implications of the big issue, they're enormous. The, the echo out. Um, just one example: about 25 years ago, some homeless guy who was selling the big issue. Um, he smashed a very large window in a building that we had. It wasn't our building, and and it cost two thousand pounds to repair this very large glass. I mean, I don't know what it cost now. Um, and uh, we then uh, made a little film about the implications of this, and we sent a we were going to send an invoice to uh, Cleveland Social Services because this boy, as a boy, this man as a boy, had been sexually molested while he was in their care, and it screwed his mind up and it screwed everything up. So when he broke the window. It was just a manifestation of what had been done to him. Mm. So we were sending Cleveland uh, Social Services uh, an invoice for services rendered. Now, that's a kind of joke. We never did it, but we it, it was a kind of way of showing that you get all this damage done to people, and it has an enormous knock-on effect. And if the only thing you can do is stop them hurting themselves and hurting other people then that is often the best you're going to get. With this guy in question, he died not very long afterwards of an overdose. But the whole process had started in a failure in in Cleveland Social Services. We're, we're very good in um, in society, aren't we, at trying to solve problems once they manifest themselves in yeah. those kind of violent acts and not actually taking an early intervention approach which I, I know so many social enterprises or social entrepreneurs do. I mean, that's part of the in- innovation is that they're trying to deal with these prob- problems or these issues before they end up in that, that smashed window. Mm. Mm. It's very difficult. Um, I, um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in um, not just social, uh, social enterprise. I mean, it's a, it's a big part of what we do. We are a social enterprise. But I'm very, very interested in just getting people trading with each other. So when we were in Northampton, we were trying to get the Housing Association working with other people, sharing their services. Um, And that, if we can get people trading together, then it really is a good beginning that fits in very well with the social enterprise 
um, um, methodology. Well, and the social echo and the work that we do in North um, that we're doing in Northampton with you is something I want to talk about in the second part of the podcast. Sure. So I'm really excited for us to, to get onto that. Um, before we before we get down that, that road, though, I mean, we, we've talked about your journey as a social innovator, as a social entrepreneur, um, and some of the challenges that you faced uh, in building the big issue. What what do you think the general challenges facing social innovators and social entrepreneurs are um, today? Well. I think they're the, the typical of anybody who enters business, which is how do you create something which is sustainable? And the, the plus and the minus of social enterprise has to be taken into account. One of the minuses is that often people are driven by their heart rather than their head. Uh, they try to address a bigger issue than they are capable of either through their funding or either through their um, uh, skill base. So therefore, that is a, that's wonderful that people are concerned. It's not wonderful that often they go belly up. And often they go belly up because the original game plan, the original business plan or whatever you call it, was far too, um, you know, far too ambitious. Gordon Roddick said to me, um, it will cost twice as much as you say, um, it will take twice as long, and your returns will be half of what you, and if you factor these kind of things in. I do believe in starting incredibly modestly, even if you've got a lot of money, maybe someone's given you enough, more than enough money to go like that, I'd get it right first. So the pluses, uh, the minuses are around being led by your by your heart rather than your head. Uh, but you need your heart and you need your head. They have to work in, in tandem. But the other thing that uh, is driving social enterprise is the com- complete and wonderful um, appetite amongst the community for seeing businesses grow that are not all about the bottom line for some distant, uh, some distant company, a chain store or whatever. So there's that kind of sense of people, even if your social trading is rather limited, people love the idea, oh look, they're, they're, this is a social attempt to, to help that lot of people or that lot of people. It's helping, you know, People get into school, into college. It's helping people get into training. So uh, there are enormous pluses. Pluses. The social enterprise, social entrepreneurism, has got a very good record, and it needs to be built upon, and it also needs to be recognised as uh, some place where you build sustainable businesses, and that means you need to winnow out the 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 over-exaggerated people who, uh, you know, they they want to take over the world and they end up with a flower pot. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I think there's, I mean, we, we do a lot of work with, with social entrepreneurs, particularly early stage and startup um, at the university, both in business support and, and with research. And all the challenges you talked about there, we've seen present. And I know the big issue actually has an invest wing that yeah. um, actually has targeted that, that 
early stage part of the social enterprise sector as well through the corporate social venturing fund. Mm. Um, was that almost you know, was that a deliberate strategy to say you know this support doesn't exist in the marketplace for very early stage entrepreneurs? We want to help them. <coughs> well, actually, it was it was cruder than that. What what we did well, I, I came up with this mechanism for somebody said to me, I want to make an investment in a in a charity, I want to put some money into a charity and uh, or a social enterprise, they hadn't quite made up their mind. And I said, all right, so what? where do you want the money to go? What's the effect? And they said, well, I'm not so sure. So I went at home and I th- thought, hang on, you know, you've got this kind of social enterprise charity, you've got all this, you know, do-gooding, you know, uh, and good doing, um, social business, charities, whatever. Is there a way of kind of measuring it very simply so that you could understand what you're talking about? And I came up overnight, as often happens with me, I came up with four categories that cover it all. Prevention, emergency, coping and cure. I call it the PEC method and it's been adopted by a number of people. They measure. So all you do is you take this kind of thing and you put it over a charity or you put it over a social enterprise so what is it, is it prevention is it emergency is it coping, stable stable? is it cure or is it all of those 80% of all the money that goes into social intervention in the world is spent in emergency and in coping very little in prevention very little in cure so having developed this model for myself I then started to Say, so, you know, is this work? You know, the big issue is largely an emergency. It's all about emergency. So, all right, and so what, what can you do? All right, you've got to make sure the emergency is better so it moves from to stability and then on to cure. So it puts you on, the, on, puts you on under start of orders. And then I kept saying, but what about prevention? What about prevention? Then I thought, well, hang on, if you actually develop a business that prevents the next generation of big issue vendors or people falling into poverty, then you've covered everything because we do the cure, not as often as we want. We do the uh, coping. We do the emergency. Let's do the prevention. And then, lo and behold, um, we got the right people to help us build funds and start investing in social businesses, or even commercial businesses, that prevented people falling into poverty, you know, by giving them work, giving them social training, or even getting them out of poverty so that they, you prevented them falling back into poverty. So it really grew out of a, this PEC method, which I think is about now about 15 years old. Okay, fantastic. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, we always ask people, where are you in the pecking order? <laughs> um, okay, great. I mean, regular viewers will know that we always end segment one with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek um, question around yeah. cars, mainly because I quite like cars. Um, and the question is, do you think that social entrepreneurs can drive a Porsche? Can you run a social enterprise and still drive a fancy car or go on a nice holiday? Yeah, I mean, it's very, very difficult to do that if you're not delivering the goods. If you, uh, there are too many people in life who've got the Porsche 
and are running businesses and all that stuff and they're really living high on the hog if you're living if you're driving a Porsche then it must mean in and you're doing it legitimately it must mean because instead of doing 20% of what you were asked to do you've done 80% or 100% so you know if you if you're supposed to be bringing in a million pounds a year and you bring in 5 million you could have the Porsche but uh, so I'm I'm not I am a very I'm a very very bad expression of um, what you might call a moralist I'm not I don't moralize I don't judge people uh, and therefore you know I often spend a lot of time making sure that people realize that my shit does smell uh, and I'm a bit of a pain in the ass uh, and all that largely because the deification that goes round mm. social enterprise and all that you you get all these wonderful people and then if you make a mistake someone says oh i don't drive a porsche um, but i would if somebody wants to give me a porsche I, i'll certainly <laughs> drive it around i borrowed a porsche one weekend and i think i broke all the traffic rules imaginable <laughs> i think i was going down a country lane 150 miles an hour <laughs> and I didn't have a seatbelt on but those were a long time ago <laughs> well if somebody wants to give me a Porsche I'll quite happily drive one as well but if you're going to have one for the weekend I think you need to you need to if you, if you, if you bring in a million pounds now if you bring in five million or ten million I'm more than happy for you to have half a million because what it means is you've increased the values and the opportunities for people because if you don't get your hands on the money then you don't get the sustainability. If, you, if you're developing a marketplace and you're pure in heart and soul, um, and then why not be pure in the front of a Porsche uh, and make the money, make the social change? So I'm not a moralist. I don't, I don't care how much people earn. I care what do they, what, what is the effect of their earnings, you know? Great stuff. Okay. Well, there you go, listeners. Do you agree or disagree with Lord Burr's take? Feel free to let us know via our Twitter feed at Institute SAI and our LinkedIn page, www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. Join us after the break for part two. Okay, welcome back to uh, part two of Talking Impact. Lord Bird, the big issue has launched a new a new scheme called Social Echo. Um, you're, you're launching it around the country, but it started in Northampton, and we were very proud to, to help host that when you came up to Northampton uh, late last year. Could you just tell us a little bit more about the Social Echo and about what the values are that underpin the work mm. you're trying to do with it? Um, in order to spread, in my opinion, the social enterprise social entrepreneurial message what do you need really need to do is you need to be reminding people how important they are in the local economy and the national economy and the community economy and it's really really people understand that every one of us is like a little grain of sand uh, that makes up a beach so you know we are all involved in that beach. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to people, people to realise that however small they felt they were, however insignificant or however significant they felt they were, 
whatever they did when they got up in the morning and went and turned on the television or got on the train or whatever and put their cards in their machines that everything they did every piece of spending every even every smile they made on the train to a complete stranger who might have looked confused it all was a kind of social echo it was to kind of bring people to aware of the fact that we are all social animals and we can have a positive or a deleterious effect if we trade in a particular way if we buy from the gated community then lo and behold the high streets will disappear uh, the um, shopping malls even even the shopping malls will disappear because that's what's actually happening now um, I live very near a very very important Tesco's uh, which employs hundreds of people and yet they're thinking of closing it largely because it doesn't make the money because people's trading patterns have changed so therefore you closed out you closed down this place you you rob that community of a chance of making wages. Not, I wouldn't say they're great wages, but uh, uh, and then you, and the same happens on the high street. So, really, what we've got to do is we've got to be fully aware of our social echo. Um, when we can get the estate agents, as I said earlier, we can get the estate agents buying the services of, of a charity that's working with homeless people, whether it's sandwiches or whether it's grass cutting or whatever. That's a social echo because you're going to buy the services anyway. Why not buy it for the benefit of people less um, uh, less able than us? So I'm fascinated by this idea. One of the things that we're doing, we, we've just launched a, a literary magazine called Chapter Catcher. And Chapter Catcher is about putting loads of chapters together, dozens of chapters, and visually, in a visually exciting way, get to people to read chapters so that they broaden the base of their reading and their understanding. Um, but we're going to be putting it in all the bookshops, and every bookshop, every whether it's a, a chain or even a... Uh, even a uh, you know a private you know a, a, a independent bookshop or even a chain, they all have a social echo. They all raise the temperature. They ra raise the intellectual aspirations of a neighbourhood. You take bookshops, you take uh, uh, barber shops. You take I mean, it's incredible. You take certain shops out of the community, then you make the community barren. You add to the alienation. You add to the emptiness and all that. So if the way is, we can... We're, so we're giving every bookshop in the country uh, a little sticker which will go in their window. At, this is my... So, we are a social echo. And we'll do it to other businesses. And we'll make them realise of the importance of their... of, of people coming and saying, oh, I'm going to go into that shop because it's got a social echo. And then you... Hopefully, we would convert everybody to realising that you've only got to take that card out of your wallet and spend it. And there's an enormous social echo around that, positive and negative. It may be that it enables um, some large companies on the edge of town to trade uh, without paying tax, the kind of taxes that the shops pay in the, uh, on the high street because they're doing it online. 
So there's all sorts of implications here, but uh, we have to find a way of using the social echo argument mm. to get people to become much, much more conscious of their trading, their relationships, you know, uh, how they how they socialise and why you would socialise in a particular way. I, mean, I think that's, that's so important, isn't it? It's an area that... Um that I've thought for a long time in that a social enterprise is hugely important. But if you could even just, if you could make the whole private sector, the whole corporate sector 10% more socially responsible, the impact that you could drive through that would be absolutely massive. And it's compared. a complete, it, 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 if you've got social enterprises, which, are, you know, I don't know how many, is it 50,000 in the country or something? Yeah, there's a bit of argument about that, but let's say 50,000, yeah. So you've got 50,000 and you've got all these other businesses social, trading socially then they all fit together and they all kind of work together and it leads to the growing of social enterprises probably in a mass sort of way I don't know if it's going to be arithmetically you know 50,000 and then 10 another 10,000 in five years or so it's got to go that way it's got to go it's got to go astronomical yeah or whatever yeah, and the impact that that drives. Um, okay, so last bit for us to discuss then is each each podcast we explore a topical issue, something that's been in the news um, that's related to the to the guest uh, social entrepreneur's work. And this show we want to centre that on homelessness. Um, so I just wanted to briefly talk to you about the Homelessness Reduction Act. It's been in, it's been in it obviously came out last year, but it's been in the news a bit lately. Um, there's um, around whether it's actually delivering the success that it's mm. that it's meant to. Um, and there's been some figures that have come out from Shelter recently that have said that one in 200 people are now living transient um, lifestyles without permanent um, home. And £1,000 uh, people per month are actually becoming um, are becoming homeless. Can we just talk, what do you think of the Homelessness Reduction Act? Has it, has it been successful? What would you like to additional, additionally to be done by government to support, to support in this area? Well, first of all, we have to applaud... Bob Blackman's original work, uh, and he was working with Shelter, he was working with Crisis, and he brought all of that research into the idea of preventing people falling homeless, so that 50 days before somebody's likely to fall homeless, the local authority has to start working with them so that they don't end up not even one night on the street. So all of that was, that's one of the reasons why I applauded it and backed it, um, and lots of other people did. But it does involve a sea change, and the big piece of sea change is that you need to put the money there so that it can happen. What has actually happened is, it, is that it's rather underfunded. The money's not there. Local authorities complain that they haven't got the money to implement this situation where nobody falls homeless because they have a responsibility. Um, about 30% of some authorities are saying that the, uh, you know, that, that it kind of works and then it doesn't work with others. Other people are saying that, you know, the people are not coming through. So there's all the kind of teething problems you would associate with it. I have no problems with teasing teething problems I would be surprised if it didn't but the 
the jury is still out as to whether it is simply a um, some wonderful idea that will never hit the ground running because it's at the moment it's it the jury is out. I mean, uh, I would like I would like to see um, uh, the recognition that nobody should be out the doors, and if this is the way to do it. Bear in mind also that it probably took 40 years to get this kind of legislation um, going because um, the homeless organisations were always agitating for this kind of joined up thinking in, in local authorities. Um, so it's, it it's, was launched last year, I think last April. Hmm. Uh, the jury's still out, it's still suffering teething, there's still a lack of finance, there's still a lack of clarity. All the things you would say as um, you would expect. It's not a honeymoon period because there isn't any great news, but there are examples throughout the country of authorities actually using it constructively and then there are people who haven't used it as constructively as that. So overall I would say Good idea. Let's see it used a bit more firmer, a bit more with more will and purpose, and with a bit more money. Yeah, I mean the, re the reform think tank has actually um, it's, it's picked up on some of those inconsistencies in delivery, so it's showing that it's, it's a more, it's a bit of a postcode lottery, isn't it? Into whether your local authority actually works in that joined up yeah. way with the other services to to, to identify those at risk. Um, Okay, so 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 there you have it. Listen. Well, I've got it here. One third of local authorities either not receiving correct referrals or receiving none at all. Local authorities plead lack of funding to implement the act properly. I mean, what would you expect? Those are the kind of things you've got to iron out. They can only be ironed out by Her Majesty's government because they're the ones who control the purse strings. Yes, yeah, and then the government's been arguing that it is spending 1.2 billion on the issue, but of course, um, it depends where that money's going and, and well, how the figures are calculated, isn't with, it? With an, a vast increase in rough sleeping and people's, you know, street homelessness, um, a chunk of that money will go there. Yeah, yeah, and there might not be an awful lot left for the seismic change that you need to make in local authorities the recruitment of people, the training up of people so that they know what they're doing. Yeah, it, it comes back to that early intervention, that joined up working that we were just talking about earlier mm. when we were talking about, about a big issue. Um, so there you have it listeners, building stronger communities to improve social impact and to support the homeless back into accommodation and employment. If you, want to engage, if you want to engage with us on any of the topics discussed today on Talking Impact, then please let us know via our Twitter feed at Talking Impact and our LinkedIn page, www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. Otherwise, look forward to you joining us on the next episode of Talking Impact. Thank you.